Hello and welcome to Immigrantly. I'm your host Sadia Khan. Before I introduce my today's guest, I want to talk about something else. As some of you already know, we have a Patreon and a GoFundMe and all details are available on our social media and our website. Now, as you know, we produce this great quality content and without your support, it is not easy to maintain the kind of quality that we do or even experiment. So do consider donating. Now you can get a monthly subscription on Patreon or you can make a one-time donation on GoFundMe. And I'm pretty sure I can count on you guys for your help and support. So once you are done listening to this episode, maybe you can check our Patreon and GoFundMe. And now a little bit about the guest. Uh, today's guest is a policy analyst, activist and a speaker on an interesting topic, US foreign policy in the Middle East. She also talks about refugees, immigration and Islam in America. She currently works on Capitol Hill and is the founder and president of Polygon Education Fund. It's a national civic education and advocacy organization which is dedicated to strengthening Muslim American engagement with Congress. I am so excited to have Warda Khalid on my show and I have so many questions for her. So without further ado, let's get started. I learned very early on in my career that if you don't define your own narrative, other people are more than happy to define it for you. And I was seeing that a lot with Muslims and Muslim women in particular, as we talked about there, you know, people would just make up things about them and say they're oppressed, that they didn't have a choice to wear a hijab or that they don't like their faith or whatever, whatever they might say. And so I saw myself when I started my religion blog, part of my goal was to like help bridge a gap that I saw between my community in Texas, you know, growing up as a Texan, and then also as a Muslim. Varda, I'm so excited to have you on my podcast and I am so proud of the work that you're doing. Well, thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here and I'm looking forward to the conversation. So let's start with your job title. You are a policy specialist, you're an analyst, you're a public speaker, and your parents are from Pakistan, right? Yes, they are. How do you explain that to like Desi uncles and aunties? <laughs> How many times have you, you know, had to go over it and explain it to them what it really is all about? Yeah, great question. I think since I started working on Capitol Hill, it's been a little bit easier because now I can just say, yeah, I work in Congress. I work on Capitol Hill and they usually know what that is thanks to like, you know, with all that's been going on in the news and the squad and everything. So they know that. But before that, I would just say like <laughs> I would do refugee and immigration advocacy. Like that was my last title. I just hope that it would land. Or you can just be like, 
I work in DC and that's usually enough for them to be like, okay, totally different world. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, it's definitely not as easy to explain as accounting, which is what I started my career. And so, and do you have siblings? I do. Yeah. I am the oldest of five. So, oh, wow. And Mm -hmm. anybody else in the same field or similar field? No, I'm the only one that's doing this. Interesting. So what though you grew up in Texas, right? Mm-hmm. Where in Texas? I grew up in Houston, Texas, actually one of the suburbs of Houston. I grew up in the Spring Tomball area. And I've heard, I've never been to Houston, but I've heard it has a large Desi population. So I'm sure the experience must have been very different from for you growing up. Can you share some memories from your childhood and what it was like in school and at home? Yeah. So I think, I mean, Houston is definitely diverse. I think it is the most diverse city in America, which is kind of cool, but because it's so suburban, I don't know if a lot of those populations necessarily mix. So my experience growing up, like in my schools, probably from the like third grade before third grade, I was more in more diverse schools. But when I, when I was in third grade, that's when I moved to the, to further suburbs to spring And at that point, you know, there were some diverse people in my school. So we would know, I would see people like of different religions or ethnicities. And so it was enough for us to like, know that we're not a monolith, but Hmm. it was also not like definitely wasn't, I wasn't seeing the biggest Desi population there for sure. Usually I would see, I would see more um, diverse people when I would go to Sunday school um, or when my parents would have some of their friends over, or when we would go for the big Eid prayer that would happen downtown or like different festivals around Eid. Um, those are the times when I would see more diverse people. But yeah, living in the suburbs, it's not a ton of diversity, but enough where where you know, like not everybody is the same. And you were in high school when 9-11 happened, right? Yes. How did your understanding of your Muslim identity change after that? Because I did go to a high school where there were a lot of people that were diverse. I mean, some of my best friends were Mormon. I had Jewish classmates. There was Hindu classmates. I think I was kind of sheltered from it. It didn't really impact me in school. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody just kind of knew. I, no, I don't think anybody even said anything to me. Now, granted, I didn't wear the hijab at that point. So maybe my experience would have been different in that case. But I think where I first realized or felt kind of personally impacted was, I don't know if it was the day of 9-11 or a few days after, but I remember being at home and some of our neighbors knocking on the door to talk to my mom because my mom did wear hijab. So it was very obvious that she was a Muslim and they brought her flowers and they said to her, you know, if you need us to go to the grocery store for you or to run any errands for you, like, let us know Hmm. the, and, and from that, I kind of understood like, Oh, the climate maybe is not safe outside of my school bubble or my home bubble. And, you know, like things are actually happening. People are having issues because of their faith. So that was kind of the first time that I realized um, something like that. I was not aware of like politics or world affairs that much at all. So I didn't really understand what was happening or why people were burning the Twin Towers. Like that was all stuff that I, and, and you know, you don't really learn about that part of the world in school that much. You skip over it, like one chapter on it, maybe. It was definitely like later in my life, like during college, when I realized kind of the extent of the Islamophobia that was taking place. And it was in college when you started wearing hijab. So what motivated... 
after college. So yeah. what motivated you to basically display your identity so unapologetically, mm-hmm. given the fact that this was post 9-11 and there, is, there was a lot and there still is a lot of hostility towards Muslim women who wear hijab? It must have been a bold step. Why did you decide to do it later? I think for me, I like to, I mean, growing up, I didn't really have anybody around me wearing hijab except for my mom. And then until I got older and then I got to college and I would see people just like me wearing it. And I realized that hijab wasn't hindering them from living their lives or doing, pursuing their passions or things like that. So I became more comfortable with the idea of me wearing it. And then, you know, just doing some Islamic research and things and understanding kind of what the Islamic perspective on hijab is, what it meant. So it was a personal decision that I I took. And it was just a way for me to display my devotion to God. That mm-hmm. was first and foremost, my reason for wearing it. And, you know, that reason uh, is above anything else, right? Mm-hmm. So it was it was something where like, I didn't really care what other people think. Like I knew that, yes, Putting this hijab was going to be a bold statement, but it also gave me a lot of confidence because it's like, now there's no questioning what I am. (laughs) You can see what I am. And I ran with it. I mean, that was the same time when I started my religion blog for the Chronicle. I started getting civically engaged in Muslim spaces. And so it just gave me the confidence to to do that. And I'm just really grateful for that. And it's interesting how hijab is a controversial issue, even within Muslim community, because not all women wear it. Even some within Muslim community have a very... um, how do I say this, negative Negative. views of hijab, (laughs) which is crazy because I don't wear hijab. Um, I grew Mm. up in Pakistan and honestly in Pakistan at the time when I was growing up, there was no concept of hijab or at least people around me did not wear hijab. The most they would do is wear dupatta. Right. Which was a common thing to do, but uh, nobody wore hijab. Now, when I go back to Pakistan, I see a lot more hijabi girls and women than when I was there. There is no, I guess, debate around what is right or wrong. But do you get frustrated with how hijab is treated, not just outside Muslim community, but how it's treated within? Oh, for sure. I mean, I've written several articles on appropriating hijab. I've talked about objectifying hijabis mm. that some of our you know, male Muslim scholars are doing. I, I've definitely like it is a it is a point for me that I feel very personal about because it was such a you know serious decision for me that. I really don't like it when I see people just not treating with respect. And so, you know, because I did wear hijab later in life, I totally am. I understand people who don't want to wear it. I understand people who want to wear it. I see both sides because I've lived both sides and I really don't care whether you're wearing hijab or not. Like that's not the essence of a person. And I think that sometimes we are, our people in our community are just guilty of not, not necessarily objectifying it in a bad way, but they focus on this one external piece of what they look at as piety Hmm. or however they want to interpret it, submission or forcefulness, whatever you want, whatever their interpretation might be. And, And they're not, they're denying a woman her agency by giving her her own voice, her own choice, you know, her own opinion on whether she wants to wear a hijab, what the hijab means to her and not treating her like a, like a human being or not treating her as like she can make her own decisions. And so it's just really, it's a personal decision. You need to keep 
you know, you need to respect people, whatever decision they make. And let's talk about more important topics. (laughs) And we see that appropriation in campaign ads right now. Yeah. And there's a lot of conversation around that as well. And unfortunately, in some of those campaign ads, women who are not even supporters of that presidential hopeful Mm. are being, you know, portrayed as supporters, which is really annoying, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we and we saw kind of the opposite happen during Obama's campaign time where, remember, we saw hijabis removed from the frame. And then after the backlash, they were brought back. And it's like, why can't your supporters just stand how they are, how they appear? Why do you need to check the box for everything or not check the box for everything? And I think there's just this still, I don't know, like a tokenization of hijab. And it's people who do that do not understand that Muslims come in all shapes colors and sizes. We are the most (laughs) diverse community ethnicity wise in the United States. And so obviously we're going to be diverse in whether our our women are wearing hijab or not. So I think it's going to take some time and some more education and Muslims being more in the public sphere for people to understand that and see that there is nuance in how Muslims live and how they dress. So you just mentioned that during Obama's time, it was the opposite reaction, right? What has changed in 12 years to facilitate uh, this focus on diverse population and especially Muslim population? I think it's changing, but very, very slowly. And it's kind of a two-prong reason here. One is that Muslims are the least civically engaged faith group of of Mm -hmm. all religious populations. And so their voices are not being heard by those that are making decisions, well, in politics anyway, but they're also not represented in the media. They're not represented in film. And we see this across the board in other issues. So, you know, one thing that I work kind of in my day job is working on diversity issues around the Asian community. And we still have a frustration of them not being in enough like media management positions, newspaper management positions, even on the Hill as in senior positions. So we have a diversity problem across the board. And so, of course, Muslims are going to fall within that. And so I think, you know, there's multiple reasons why people don't understand. And I just just now as we're talking, I just remembered how in that Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad, there was a hijabi photographer. (laughs) And it was like, I mean, I guess that's good. She was just being a photographer. But also, would she have showed up to that kind of uh, protest thing? I don't know. I mean, Muslims are the most, uh, you know, they have the they're the most supportive out of all faith groups for the Black Lives Matter movement. So I feel like she would not have actually been, (laughs) been there. But um, Okay, that was a tangent. So yeah, so there, I mean, it's, there's multiple reasons, right? It's like, also from the grassroots, you're not having people politically engaged as it could be. It is increasing. and And we can talk about this in detail, but also just in the media, in campaigns, in, you know, every industry besides maybe engineering and the medical field, we are underrepresented. And so but that's also gonna, our yeah. fault, right? Because oh, we sure. tell our kids what to do. And as you mentioned, even you started with accounting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what piqued your interest in U.S. policy? Uh, and how did you change fields? And what was your parents' reaction? Yeah, so I, I did start in accounting. I did pick accounting by myself, which was actually kind of a bold move. There weren't many Muslims in my school doing accounting. They were mm. still very much in the biomedical field. I was also writing for the newspaper in my schools. I was the only Muslim person doing that. And I remember like the Muslim Students Association president asked me to like talk to the group about how I got into writing for the newspaper. So I was always doing things that were kind of outside the norm. And I think that was just, you know, that's just kind of my personality of not really wanting to conform and, you know, wanting to make my own decisions. But at the same time, 
I wanted to be practical. And so my thought process, you know, growing up in Texas and in Houston, I didn't really know anybody who worked in policy. I didn't really know how to get there, but I just knew I wanted to do something like government or UN related and just like make good policy. And so I thought I was going to go to law school and law school really doesn't care what major you choose. And so mm-hmm. that's why I was like, well, I'll just pick business because business is a good school. And, you know, in case the law school thing doesn't work out, like I can do that. And so from there, I went into accounting and I was good at accounting and I actually worked in accounting for three years after I graduated. And then, you know, I, as I mentioned, I was doing a lot of civic engagement work on the side and it just got to the point where I was spending all of my spare time doing civic engagement work. And I was like, okay, I need to go back to this original like dream that I had of moving to DC and working in policy. And so, you know, because my background was in accounting, I realized I needed to go to graduate school and get another master's degree Mm. and like had the opportunity to do internships at the United Nations, um, which I think they only let students do. So there was like a multitude of reasons. And my, my family was supportive of me going to grad school and, and supportive of me pursuing these careers. But my dad still is like, all right, like you've had your fun. Are you, are you going to come back to Houston? Like you had a great job. And so there's always kind of that pressure there. But I think if you're focused and you have a vision and you understand and you do have other support around you, you know, you, you stick to it. But yeah, I definitely, it's not like the, the pressure has gone away. You know what, you just mentioned how you chose accounting because you thought it was a practical thing to do at mm-hmm. that time, right? And this is so emblematic of immigrant mindset. I see that with me and I think what we do to our kids, because your parents are immigrants, we transmit that notion of practicality, right? We want our kids to choose professions that are more practical. And I was talking to my intern the other day and her parents are from Korea. And she she and I were having this discussion about how um, when immigrants come here, they feel a ton of emotions. Like there is isolation, there is some kind of disorientation. Decisions that they make in life are very practical decisions. And then we transmit that to our kids. How much of your parents' experiences have impacted your choices in career, in your personal life? I mean, I think my parents' experiences, as far as like, when I look at my dad, he was, you know, extremely well-educated. He, you know, had degrees from Pakistan, then he came to the U.S. and got degrees and master's degrees here as well. And so like that really instilled in me the value of education. My mom also was educated in Pakistan. Both of my parents stressed the importance of education. And I think that made me really focus on academics growing up. And then, you know, my dad also is an entrepreneur. He has his own business and that also really influenced me. And I think it it made me realize that I could start my own initiative, which is what I did with Polygon. Hmm. So like thinking outside of the box and seeing kind of like, what is the need? It's a very much immigrant mindset, right? They kind of create their own jobs. They make their own destiny. They go for the American dream. Exactly. And so it was a lot of hard work that was instilled in me from both of my parents and seeing them work hard, whether it's taking care of their kids or what they're doing with work or, you know, making sure that their kids are getting educated in their faith by taking them to Sunday and Friday school. So that experience really instilled in me, you know, good moral values and appreciation for for their background, appreciation for the struggle that they did when they came to the U.S., and understanding that I wanted to move forward and kind of make them proud of what I contributed. I didn't want to just be like a kid who just took advantage of that. 
Hmm. Let's talk about your work. Now, you have an extensive history of contributing to different publications as a writer, as you mentioned in the beginning. So you've written like thought pieces, op-eds and a lot more. In your opinion, do you think that online publications are contributing to elevating the voices of marginalized people? And in what ways have you seen that happen? Absolutely. I learned very early on in my career that if you don't define your own narrative, other people are more than happy to define it for you. And I was seeing that a lot with Muslims and Muslim women in particular, as we talked about there, you know, people would just make up things about them and say they're oppressed, that they didn't have a choice to wear a job or that they don't like their faith or whatever, whatever they might say. And so I saw myself when I started my religion blog, part of my goal was to like help bridge a gap that I saw between my community in Texas, you know, growing up as a Texan mm-hmm. and then also as a Muslim and, and understanding what the, the Islam that I lived was not what was being portrayed in the media and wanting to bridge that gap. So that blog was all about me defining my own narrative, explaining what Islam was to me, how I viewed different events and different things that were going on and to share that experience to fight disinformation. Talking about disinformation, Varda, we see that a lot. And since we have you on the show and you're the expert, I'll share some terms and phrases that I think are extremely problematic. And these are like Muslim tropes that are invoked all the time in media and everywhere. I want your feedback and your response to what you think or what you make of those terms. Now, we hear the term moderate Muslim a lot. Right. Uh, To the point where (laughs) Muslims have started thinking that they have to use this qualifier to justify who they are. What do you think? I hate the term moderate Muslim (laughs) with a passion. And I'm very familiar with this term because when people used to comment on my blogs, they would say things like that. Like, where are all the moderate Muslims or why aren't you guys protesting terrorism in the streets? And I just hated it because it insinuates that. A Muslim, by definition, is not moderate or level or however you want to describe moderateness, that they are inherently extreme. And in order to qualify yourself or disqualify yourself from that extremism, you have to adopt a quote unquote moderate Islam so you can be a moderate Muslim. Comparisons between terrorists versus lone wolf narrative, right? That's that's a common narrative we see. Then we see a narrative about civilized versus uncivilized world. We see terms like jihadists. It really bothers me. Um, As a human rights activist, it always bothered me. And I'm sure you work in U.S. foreign policy realm. It probably bothers you a lot as well. And I'm sure you see this term used a lot, right? For sure. What, what is your take on it? And do you think we need to have a manual or a set of guidelines as to what should not be used to talk about Muslims or to represent Islam? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was so bothered by these terms of jihadists. And I, I actually, when I was in graduate school, I took my graduate school capstone project was on lone wolf terrorism. Hmm. And I, we did that with the UN counterterrorism executive directorate. And we studied like a hundred cases of lone wolf terrorism to understand what motivates them. And of course we found that Islam was not a motivating <laughs> factor. Surprise, surprise. We screaming <laughs> that forever. But, you know, the reason why it's so important to do these types of studies and talk about it is because the data just does not support these types of narratives that we're always hearing about. And, 
you know, when you talked about Allahu Akbar, there, we have noticed when people, I think the ISPU did a study, I don't know if it was ISPU or somebody was looking at how often media would, when, when Allahu Akbar was yeah. said, they would mention it in headlines that hmm. somebody screamed Allahu Akbar and ran down the street or whatever it was, even though the Allahu Akbar was not verified, even though they could have said something else, even though somebody could have been lying. And these are all things that they found out after the fact they still put it in the title and fueled this disinformation. And it's really terrible because it actually has really dangerous consequences for Muslims or people who appear Muslim in this, in, when they're going about their daily lives. And so I really don't like the fact, I don't like the term jihadist because jihad is not what the term jihadist means. It means, means. struggle. It means right. effort. It is a strive. And yeah. there's three different ways you can strive. It could be a spiritual struggle. I mean, if you study Islam, you will know these things. And mm. One, another term was thakiyah. I remember like people yeah. on my blog would say that and they're like, oh, you're just doing thakiyah. I'm like, <laughs> hold up. Like I grew up Muslim and I've never heard this term in my life. Exactly. And so I had to like look up these terms that they were calling me. It was just mind boggling to me that they felt that they had the right to just take words and take my religion and turn it into whatever they wanted and have, you know, serious consequences result from that. Like that's not okay. And so I think it's so important that we call people out when they do engage in these terms. And I will tell people in my circles that I'm not okay with words like jihadist. I'm not okay with calling them the Islamic state, you know, yeah. for ISIS or Daesh. I'm not okay with that because you're furthering their narrative and, and that puts people in danger and it's also wrong. How do people respond to that though? Because I see that in media so regularly and even the kind of media that I trust or media outlets that I really trust, they use it all the time. So what kind of response do you get when you tell people that? I think people are often curious when I tell them. Mm. I know like when I've told them, they're like, wait, why? I thought it was okay to say that. And I'll explain to them, be like, would you go up and call somebody a Christianist? Like when they use the term Islamist, yeah. like, would you call somebody a Christianist? Think about it in the term, in the context of other religions. And they're so one dimensional when they look at Islam, that they're been allowed to get away with saying these things that it takes an open minded person to like stop and listen and understand. So and I think more than that, we have to really change and recreate these narratives. And we want people who have agency, especially Muslim women and men who should speak up against all these things. Because what's happening is that all of these tropes have become such an integral part of local vernacular. Unless we change it and we create um, counter narratives. Right now, I'm reading this book. This book was recommended by a guest, um, He's a wonderful person, um, Simranjit Singh, and he talked about this book during our interview, and it's called Orientalism by Edward Seth. And yeah, I still need to read that book. Oh, my God. It is <laughs> such an amazing book, and it makes so much sense in what's happening right now, and it is so, so relevant. And the more I read it, the more I understand Western psyche and how Muslims have always been, in a way, looked at by Western countries from place of dominance and mm. from place of being an imperial power. And that's what the dynamic is. And that's why the even the language, the narratives that we see in cultural and political realms are dictated by that notion of the other. Yeah, for sure. I, I even see it on 
Capitol Hill. I mean, I was Mm. taking a course, an outside organization that deals with foreign policy came in and just gave a course to staffers. And I remember they were talking about their experience. I don't know if it was in Iraq or Afghanistan. And just in passing, they mentioned the word infidels. Mm. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Sitting there like, excuse me, did you did you really just say that with a serious face and you're supposed to be a scholar on this on this topic? And I was so like, what do I do? And I think that's why it's so important that we are in these spaces because we can catch it. And so afterwards, like on their feedback form, I wrote, please do not use words like infidel. It is Islamophobic. (laughs) And, you know, it's not okay for you to be using that. And I think I think that's why I'm saying is like, it's so important to have Muslims or at least people familiar with Islam that are in newsrooms, that are writing these books, that are in the media, that are speaking because they can catch these things. And this goes for any diverse community. And it's just, it's mind boggling that people can get away with it. But you're right, it does come from this sense of this Orientalism, this imperialism. And when we look at our US foreign policy, it totally, that explains a lot of our US foreign policy and is why I wanted to get involved because I was like, this is just not right. And some American needs to come in and fix things. So talking about your involvement, I want to talk a little bit about your um, organization. It's called Polygon Education Fund. It's a fund um, which you are president of. And in your mission statement, you mentioned the low numbers of political engagement from the Muslim community. Now, of course, that makes sense, considering that there is a lot of vilification of Muslims. And then Muslims are lazy, too. I I will say that. I think we should be more (laughs) engaged, yes. We have terrible PR and we are lazy. And we focus only on being doctors and engineers, which which needs to change. How do you hope to see levels of engagement within American Muslims increase? And do you think Muslims are one-issue constituents? I think there's different things that we can look at when we look at their engagement. So what Polygon focuses on is congressional engagement. And so we actually partner with some other civic engagement organizations to get a a poll study done from the ISPU. And we found that only 17% of Muslims reached out to their member of Congress in the last year. And this was the lowest Hmm. of all faith groups, like by a lot. And similarly, only 20% reached out to their local elected officials And so it shows that the bar is low. I tell people the bar is on the floor. You can only (laughs) go up from here. And it's really something that, you know, I think we needed these numbers to understand where we're at. Now, I think Muslims are better at voting. I mean, our voter registration numbers are still the lowest of any faith group. We have a voter registration rate of 73%. Hmm. But those numbers are increasing as well. And Muslim voter turnout is increasing. I think after 2016, when people saw just how much their apathy cost, like what it cost, where literally there were states where Muslims didn't turn out enough and they could have switched who the electoral votes went to. Now, Mm. that's a whole other problem in and of itself. But it was a huge wake up call for Muslims. So the turnout actually jumped dramatically in the 2018 midterm elections. And it's continuing to to rise. Polygon, for instance, we focus a lot on our training. So we will go out and train community groups on how do you do a town hall meeting with your member of Congress? How do you do a phone call? How do you do an office visit? And we walk people through it. Mm-hmm. And these skills can be transferred to the local level as well. We're continuing to get training requests. We get a lot of training requests because I think people are now hungry to get their community civically engaged because they've seen what happens when you don't. And as far as whether Muslims are one issue voters, no, I do not think so. I I know so that they are not. Hmm. One study, when we started Polygon, the way that we determined what issues we wanted to work on was by looking at 
different studies. So we would look at the Islamic ISP, which is the uh, Institute of Social Policy and Understanding, and they did their Muslim survey. I think that was a 2016 survey we were looking at, and it showed that Muslims care about things that non-Muslim Americans care about. So the Mm -hmm. economy, jobs, housing, civil rights and civil liberties, national security. And so Polygon has actually focused exclusively on domestic issues so far because those issues do affect Muslims. Muslims don't just care about foreign policy or they don't just care about Palestine. Yeah, that's a misconception yeah, that's I mean, out there. Yeah, of course they care about those things too. But in addition, they also care a lot about these domestic issues. For instance, the GOP tax plan that came out actually largely impacted Muslims in the U.S. And so mm-hmm. we were able to come out with a resource that that described that. And so I think as people are understanding that and looking more inward and seeing how these domestic issues impact them, they're going to continue to increase. But I think the presidency for sure was a wake-up call. What kind of turnout are you expecting from Muslims in 2020? Very, very high turnout. Mm. Um, I think it was like CARE and I think maybe Jetpack and some other organizations did a study after the 2018 one. And they said that like 95% or really high percentage of Muslims that were registered to vote came out and voted in the midterm elections. And so based on that, I would say that it's probably going to be very high. But like I said, I think after what happened in 2016, I think everybody is going to like get up and and make sure they vote for presidential. And especially because I think just Americans in general vote more in the presidential election. And do you see Muslims as like a single voting bloc or do you see a lot of diversity in terms of who they support um, when it comes to different presidential hopefuls? Yeah, there is diversity in who they support. I know Muslims that are on several different presidential campaigns, all for different candidates. And that is how it should be, because Muslims are a diverse group. And we talked about their ethnic diversity, but they also come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. They come from different educational backgrounds. They come from different lived experiences. And so anybody who thinks that they can just get the quote unquote Muslim vote by saying or doing something is wrong. Muslims care about the issues. So you have to get them on the issues. Now, obviously, if you're going around and saying you want to ban them, (laughs) yeah, they're not going to vote for you, hopefully. But otherwise, you get them at the issues because that's what they care about. I mean, just like any other American. So, yeah, I mean, I have seen people make claims that, you know, uh, for instance, like with the 2016 elections, like if Muslims had voted more, but that is uh, that they would have made a difference with which which way the state went. But I think that is an extreme example of when you had Trump versus like the Democratic candidate. But I mean, in Texas, for instance, where I am, there are definitely Republican Muslims there and they are definitely engaged in politics there. And it was actually Muslims, majority of Muslims voted for George Bush whenever he was running. And so that was a Republican ticket. So it's... Although you know, I wonder why, right? <laughs> yeah, well, we so, can go back and, and try to figure out why. But so yeah, it's diverse. On foreign policy front, what concerns you most, Varda? Just general foreign policy, not like specific to the Middle yeah. East or the Muslim world. I think the what concerns me the, the most right now is is what we talked about with this this Orientalism, the the mm. seeing of looking at the Muslim world through an Orientalist lens, American imperialism, this just lack of regards for human rights, for standards, for the own treaties and agreements that we have made, especially under the Trump administration, where it seems his goal is to just undo everything that Obama did. I, there's a joke 
that has like a meme that's been going around. It's like, what, what is wrong with the Iran deal? Like, you know, what, what could you come up with a better deal? And Trump's answer is that Obama signed it, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's literally what we're seeing. And so I think right now we are in a state of chaos. We're in a state of disarray where even our normal international norms and agreements are not being adhered to by the United States. So that's, I think, a different problem on a different level because of Trump and, you know, even in the Middle East, what he's doing by just completely changing decades-long U.S. foreign policy on um, Israeli settlements in the West Bank and moving the U.S. embassy. And it's it's just been like just pure chaos, taking out UNRWA funding. But I think overall, I think even before that, it was just this less of a, um, I think, reliance on diplomacy and mm. too much militarism mm. that has led to these endless wars that we're in, that have led to these horrific drone strikes that have killed so many civilians, often in Muslim countries, and just, just complete disregard for the humanity of people that are outside of our borders, and particularly among Arabs and Muslims are people that are with brown or black skin. And that really bothers me because every human being's life is precious Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter what country they live in. They should be treated humanely. But in all fairness, a lot of these policies were also implemented and affected during Obama administration, especially um, drone attacks. There was an uptick during his time. Mm -hmm. And there were so many other policies that his administration pursued. Now that we have President Trump, I think every time we compare the two, we are always like, no, Obama wasn't as bad or whatever. I think we should also look back and see what has been a problem with U.S. foreign policy, irrespective of which party is in power and who is in power. And this date backs, like, even before 9-11, dehumanization of Muslims or the Muslim community or Muslim world, mm-hmm. uh, for that matter, has been going on for um, decades. And, and Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. And I think we are more aware of it now because it's so mainstream and so in your face, but it was always there. Yeah, for sure. And like I said, it was during Obama's time where I became interested in foreign policy and, you know, Mm -hmm. why were we in the Iraq war and understanding like the consequences of our actions there. And, you know, you had administration officials saying that it was okay that hundreds of thousands of children had died and of course, you know, everybody should be responsible for the actions they took under the administration. So when I was talking about drones and such, I'm definitely talking about drone strikes under Obama. They, mm. uh, We had the most deportations under Obama as well. You know, a lot of these policies that are happening at our southern border, you know, Trump will often say, well, this is just the same thing that the Obama administration exactly. has on the books. We're just, you know, doing it now. So there's like a microscope for sure on the Trump administration. But yeah, it doesn't let anybody else off the hook. OK, let's talk about something sweet. You love desserts. We are completely like pivoting <laughs> into something completely different. I do. And I love desserts too. Um, is there a particular kind of dessert that you like or are you like fond of any dessert? I really love chocolate. Like oh. I have to eat chocolate every day, pretty much. Like if I don't have chocolate, I feel like it's missing. It's like a food group for me. Oh, interesting. <laughs> but I, I really, really like chocolates. So anything chocolate related. But yeah, I can be bougie or really simple in my desserts. I I love like chocolate chip cookies, but then I'll also love like this, you know, gourmet chocolate cakes covered with chocolate ganache and yeah, just all the decadent stuff. (laughs) Do you like desi desserts? Um, 
Not as much. I'm very particular about the ones that I like. I'm I like barfy. Okay. <laughs> and, um, I like some ladu if it's like a good one. And then my mom makes really amazing gulab jamun, oh, and nice. so I only like hers. And she has this like really great recipe for it. And now I understand why I love donuts so much because they're so similar to gulab jamun and and, and the way that she makes them. And you know, food is such an important way and interesting way of connecting to different cultures, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like uh, wherever you go and you travel a lot. You have traveled a lot because of your work. Do you travel like just for work or for leisure as well? Like for both. I really enjoy just visiting different cultures, meeting different people, seeing how they live. I think the world is so beautiful and we should try to experience as much of it as we can. And I just, I'm really privileged that I get to do it. Do you have a favorite place? Oh, that is really hard. I, I mean, when you said that, the first thing that came to my mind was Switzerland. Cause that was like one of my early travels that oh. I did. I think it was like, I think over 10 years ago. So like the first place that I'd gone besides Canada and Pakistan was this trip that I took to Europe to Switzerland, Italy, and Spain. So I really, really loved Spain as well, actually, because it had this nice marrying of Islamic history with European history. And you could see kind of the structures and forts and things that were from the Islamic time there. That was really, really cool. But yeah, I've I've been really privileged to see some beautiful landscapes in Switzerland and Peru and even like the northern parts of Pakistan that I've been to are really, really beautiful. And I just wish that, you know, I could have seen more of it and spent more time there. It's interesting because I grew up watching Bollywood films, which is very mm-hmm. common for any Pakistani. My my exposure to Switzerland comes from all oh Bollywood God. movies, right? There were a lot of, for sure, Indians. And like there were a lot of brown people there when I went. <laughs> there was also a lot of people from the Gulf in this. I remember it was this town called Interlaken. That we went to and it was like kind of a hub where you would go there and then you could continue on north or whatever. There was definitely a lot of like Muslim and brown people (laughs) there because I think they must have all seen the same movies that you did. (laughs) Did you grow up watching Indian movies or was that not part of your Uh, childhood? I mean, I watched some like when I would go to Pakistan and and visit my cousins, we would watch some sometimes, but not that much. My mom was kind of against us watching Bollywood movies because she didn't like how they portrayed women. Oh, (laughs) that's interesting. She was like a feminist, I guess, where she was just like, "Um, you need to know that there's more to life than just being pretty and catching (laughs) a guy. (laughs) So I'm actually very grateful um, that she put that in now if I... I think when I got older, I would I would watch it with my friends. Like we would watch it in college, like make fun of things. And it was like a fun, enjoyable thing. And they would have good songs. And I still love them. I really like the music. I think probably I grew up more on the music than the actual movies. Yeah, that's true. So in the end, Varda, if you were to describe America, especially with what's going on today, how would you describe it? I would say that America is a beautiful land with a complicated history and we have a real, a lot of really great ideals in this country, like freedom and pluralism and equality and justice, but they don't always match up with the reality based on the actions from officials in the country or from people in the country that are making the, the decisions. And we have a lot of structural and systemic issues that are holding off or preventing some people from achieving the American dream, which is what America is known for. And so I think that is just something that we're still grappling with. And however, we have brilliant people that provide hope and proof that change is possible and that 
American can reach those ideals. So not a specific policy or anything. It's just this kind of resilience, this hopefulness, and this idea that we can live better lives together. And are you all set for 2020 elections? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm watching what's happening. I don't know if I'm all set, but I'm, I'm definitely watching and, and seeing how things shake out and keeping a close eye. Can I ask you if you have a favorite I haven't actually like officially endorsed anybody. Okay. <laughs> then I won't. Yeah. Uh, I will tell you that I'll probably be uh, voting for a Democrat. <laughs> Not be voting for Trump. I will tell you that. Um, honestly, whoever I, I mean, I'm kind of one of those people that's like whoever gets picked, whoever emerges as a front runner, like we all kind of have to put our support behind them because that's what's most important for the country. Right. It's not really about me. It's what's about best for everybody. So yeah. I kind of I'm more concerned about that. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. So guys, with this, we end today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week when we'll bring you another incredible perspective and amazing story. By the way, we are on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at immigrantly underscore pod and Instagram at immigrantly pod. Be sure to follow us for latest information, events, giveaways, episodes, and so much more. And as always, thank you for listening and stay connected.